0: Saints. So if I need to do something different about the feedback, I'm more than happy to do so. But until then, I'm excited. I'm honored uh, to be able to share with you all this morning as we're launching a new, not so new series about Jesus that we've entitled Provocative Words. And before we do that, I want to just jump into a little quick promo. For those of you who missed last week, And our very, very cool prayer service. I want you to pick up one of these on your way out, right? This is a prayer calendar, and it begins today, because today is July 1st. And so what we're going to be reading through today, so my wife and I, we had a chance to read through Psalm 1 today, and uh, basically what we're doing is we're reading a psalm each day of the month, and then there's a key verse specifically to be able to pray through. If you're able to pray through the entire psalm, even better. Um, That'd be exciting, and I feel like that's where you're going to get the most out of this, But at least honing in on a specific verse that we've indicated for you. And this is something we want to do together as a church family. So, really encourage you if you guys have not, if you got a partner update, it should have been in there. It was in the second one because I couldn't figure out how to do it the first time. So, anyway, but if you want a real live, you know, handheld copy, you can grab one on the way out. So, that little infomercial done. I want to start at the beginning because I said that this is a new, not so new series. And the reason I said it that way is because a bit over a month ago, what we shared that we were going to do as a church this summer is we're going to take a deeper dive into the life, the words, and the activity of Jesus. That our goal was to get to know him better. And I know that may sound strange to some of you. It's like, well, wait, I mean, isn't every week supposed to be about Jesus in some way, shape, or form? Teaching Jesus in church is not supposed to be some novel idea, and it's not. It's just kind of as we were taking a step back and looking at this series, we understood that, man, oftentimes when we're in church and we're talking about Jesus, what we're actually doing is telling you saints, right, or informing you saints on how Jesus wants us to live, how he wants us to be. And so during this summer, we wanted to go a different route. We wanted to focus more on the knowing than the doing because that's how relationships work. Relationships, the good relationships anyway, focus more on the knowing of the person than the doing things for them. In fact, that's what drives good relationships. And everyone who's in a good relationship understands that that it's the knowing drives the doing and the doing is always going to be a bit unique depending on the person. So, As an example, for me, loving my wife, part of loving my wife is realizing that she is always up for a conversation whenever the two of us are alone. And in my mind, I can think, woman, we've been married for over 21 years. What is there left to talk about? But did I say that out loud? You know, it's like, no, wait, And, uh, but we just know the reality is that my wife will always, when when we have our one-on-one time, she's always going to want to have some type, and she'll have some type of idea, some lively thing for us to talk about. But I said it's unique, right? So for my wife, on the other hand, she knows that her husband, especially if he's been out a long day and had, you know, a number of different meetings, when he comes home, he kind of, that's me, husband. So when he comes home, he just kind of likes to sit off on his own play a game, read a book, or um, read the news, and then, so she's graciously, patiently gives me about an hour or so, sometimes she's actually bouncing, waiting for that hour to get, and then after that hour is done, she's like, all right, sweetheart, so how's your day been? It's like, all right, fantastic, I'm ready to engage, and so that's kind of how relationship works, right, knowing drives doing, because she knows me, and I know her, we kind of figure out what happens as a result of that, and that's kind of what we're doing over the course of this series, knowing drives doing, every good relationship, Grasps this truth, which is why we've chosen to focus on knowing and then allowing the uniqueness of your relationship with Jesus kind of drives some of the doing as, as opposed to us defining what that application looks like for you. So, Additionally, because this is a knowing series, we've uh, decided to make it an Awaken Q&A series as well. And for those of you who don't know what Awaken Q&A is, basically during the course of the teaching, if there are any uh, questions, comments, or thoughts that you might have, text them to awakenqna at gmail.com. And after the teaching, we'll spend a few moments to be able to um, share those thoughts and to tackle those questions. So with that, For the remainder of this month, so last month we focused on knowing uh, in ways of, of understanding the life of Jesus and the identity of Jesus. This month we're going to spend our time going through some of the words of Jesus and the words specifically that are tied to his identity, tied to who Jesus is. And so we're going to spend our time this morning in Luke chapter 9. And before we get to the verses I really want us to hone in on and the words I really want to hone in on, I want to give us some context. And so for those of you who have your Bibles and want to turn, it's Luke chapter 9 starting in verse 18. We'll also have the passages up on the PowerPoint. So let's start there. One day, Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him and he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you were one of the other ancient prophets risen from the dead. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. One of the things that Jesus illustrates is when you're working and serving for an extended period of time, you need to take a break. And if anyone here doubts that, look to the example of Jesus. This is not a one-time affair. As a matter of fact, frequently, as Jesus is caught up in the work of ministry, he is mindful to take these times and get alone, to get away, sometimes by himself, other times with his closest friends, with his 12 disciples. And that is what is happening in this passage. He's getting some time away from the crowds. He's just fed 5,000 men and all of their families and all the women and children that were there with five loaves of bread and two fish, right? Huge, incredible miracle. And then he is, after this, getting some time away with his 12 disciples. And his goal is to spend this time in prayer. And in the midst of this prayer time, at some point in this prayer time, I'm sure in his break, talking to his father, he turns to his disciples and asks them this interesting question. Who do people say that I am? And their response is really interesting. I mean, if we were to turn to someone and say, hey, who do other people say? What do other people say about me? Who do they think I am, right? You get some type of response. Well, you're a good guy. But listen to what the people say about Jesus. They say that he's John the Baptist, Elijah, or any of the other ancient prophets from the dead that's a striking response because if you notice one of the things that all of these people have in common is that they're dead so it was easier for people who were looking at the life of jesus following the life of jesus trying to figure out what jesus is all about it was easier for them to think that he was some reincarnated dead saint than someone else that they might be able to identify with and that seems like a crazy idea right But what else were they supposed to think? Because Jesus is doing things that no other mortal human being has done before in their sight. He's healed the sick. He's healed the lame. He's healed the lepers. He has fed thousands of people with nothing more than a few fish and loaves of bread And then he's even raised people from the dead, the son of the widow from Nain. And I don't think it's gotten to Lazarus yet, but but that raising people from the dead is quite a remarkable thing. And so the prevailing theory that the people were having is that if this is not something that's possible for normal human beings, then the only other answer that we have for who Jesus might be is that he is some resurrected Prophet from ancient times. Or John the Baptist. I guess he was the most recently dead. So, And if you understand that, that, okay, well, that's what we were thinking, that no normal mortal human being could do what he's doing, so he must be one of the ancient prophets brought to life. Maybe that idea doesn't seem so crazy. But then Jesus takes it the next step. He turns to his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? You know, when our... Uh, I have four children, and when our kids were young. One of the things I really enjoyed doing was playing hide and seek with them. I, I enjoy playing hide and seek anyway. I'm like my daughter Isabel. If you ever have my daughter Isabel follow you around, she likes to stay in your blind spot. So you're turning around and just kind of looking and saying, Are you still there? And I love doing that. As so I step one way and my wife's walking, so she sees me out of the corner of the eye, and then I step the other side and I walk right next to her. And it's just a fun little thing. So I love doing it when our kids were really small too. I just kind of like to hide from them and when they're really young. And I loved what I loved about it was our kids, when they're really, really young, they start looking around for you. And and this, they had this confused look in their eyes and then this lost look like where and they start to get a bit anxious and then all of a sudden they see you and what happens for you who are parents and have little kids they're like oh, their eyes light up they brighten up and they start crawling towards you wobbling towards you walking running towards you wherever they're at in their stage of life and I just loved that transition to be able to see in their faces because you know You don't have to be very good at hiding if they're really young. And so you just kind of watch them, and you see their eyes go from lost, confused, to like recognition, and to see their joyful response when recognition happens. And so um, I can't help but imagine that as we're talking about this scene, that's kind of what is happening here. All this time that Jesus has spent with his disciples. If you've been reading the story up until this point in Luke chapter 9, you realize that Jesus has not yet told them who he is. It's not like he told them that, hey, I'm your Messiah, I'm your Savior, this is all this stuff. He's not told them yet. He wanted them to figure it out. And he wanted them to figure it out based on his life, his words, and his activity. That sound familiar? That's what we're doing here this summer. And so you, if you understand that, and if you can understand the whole dad perspective of looking around and having your kid, you can imagine the gratification Jesus felt when he heard Peter say, you are the Messiah sent from God. It's like, yes, you recognize me. You get it. They know all this time that we spent together has not been in vain. And in the book of Matthew, you can hear the enthusiasm and the excitement in Jesus' response because this is what he says. Now I know that you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church. And that rock being this rock-steady declaration that you have made, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That's how proud Jesus is that Peter's recognized who he is. So with this in mind, some of you might be wondering, well, Jesus is God, right? So if Jesus is God, didn't he know that Peter knew who he was? And does that mean he knows what Peter is going to say before he even said it? And, and, and maybe. And if so, then why did Jesus have to create this opportunity? Why did Jesus craft this private moment with his closest friends in order to have them say who they thought he was? And I don't know. But I'm guessing that what Jesus wanted to do was was, what he understood was important is for the disciples to not only see who he was but to say it because there's something about things becoming more real when they're said and not just thought it's one thing to think i love my wife. it's another thing to say to her i love you or i do some things need to be said for it to become real does that makes sense to us? And I think that declaration was a turning point in the disciples' relationship with Jesus. You are the Messiah sent from God. Now, what is fascinating is right afterwards, what does Jesus tell them? Jesus says, then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So, Peter recognizes that he's the Messiah. The other disciples did too. Maybe they just, Peter jumped on it and said it first. Jesus is so proud. And then he says, all right, all right, all right. You can know this. Don't tell anyone else. Why? Why? Because it's okay for you to know that I'm the Messiah, but don't spread it around yet. Why? Probably because everyone else, if they find out that I'm the Messiah, they're going to have the wrong impression, just like you right now have the wrong understanding of what Messiah is supposed to mean. So let me take a moment, now that you recognize that I'm the Messiah, to tell you what that means. And here it is. Luke 9.22, the son of man must suffer many terrible things. He will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. So here it is, the God-honest truth from the lips of the Messiah himself. The declaration, so basically what the declaration of the disciples made, right, that you were the Messiah, it opened the door for Jesus to say, you have gotten a hint of the truth. You recognized who I am. Now I need to take you into what that means. And what it means is not what most of you are thinking, So we went through this a couple weeks ago when we went through our earlier series, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but basically the idea is most of the Jews had this idea of Messiah coming as being the coming of a great king who is going to come and rule and overthrow the current authorities and reestablish Israel as a premier power. That's kind of the idea of Messiah that most of them had, including the disciples. And you can see how the disciples might be thinking that, that here's Jesus, he's in year one of his ministry, maybe part way into year two, and he's already got thousands of followers. And you know what these thousands of followers could easily become? Thousands of people in an army. And who are we? We would, as the disciples, would become the captains and generals in this army. And so Jesus needed to nip that idea in the bud right off the bat. He needed to teach them what it meant to be Messiah. So in the same way, like I used that earlier analogy about my kids, it's one thing for my children when they're really, really, really young to recognize that I'm their daddy. But all of us understand that that recognition isn't where it ends. I now have to teach them what it means to be dad. And when I'm teaching them what it means to be dad, it means I love you, I care for you, I protect you, and yes, I discipline you as well. And these are things that will take our children time to learn. Recognition is just the beginning. And in the same way it was for the disciples, recognizing that Jesus was the Messiah was not enough. Jesus now had to teach them what it means to be Messiah, to let them know who he was and let that knowing drive what needed to be done next. Is that under, is that, it's really important you catch that, right? It is the knowing, the recognizing who Jesus was is the key first step. And what Jesus is doing is now that you recognize, I need to teach you what it means and what it means for your life right now. And so the very next verse, Jesus is taking that step, and this is what he tells them. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the verse we're gonna spend some time on today. But you have to understand the context for these words to have Meaning. Now that you know who I am, this is the seminal moment. This is the first command that comes as a result of your knowing. Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. These are some of the most difficult and challenging words Jesus has ever spoken to his followers. So in 1889, Menelik II became the emperor of Ethiopia. And he reigned for about 24 years until his death, and he was generally considered to be a great emperor. And one of the things that he is remembered for is modernizing the country of Ethiopia, basically from a a collection of um, semi-independent states into a united union. And one of the decisions that he made in an attempt to modernize this country was he wanted, he heard about this more humane way of... Uh, putting to death hardened criminals. And so he decided part of our modernizing the country was to use this new device that just was introduced in 1890 called the electric chair. And it was actually launched in Auburn, New York, in the United States. Surprise, surprise, we came up with a humane way to kill people. So anyway... uh, So, Menelik decided that, I'm going to buy and purchase three electric chairs, and in so doing, be more humane in how we're going to execute hardened criminals. And so, once he got the three and unpacked them and opened up, he was quite dismayed to realize that they wouldn't work. And the reason why they wouldn't work is in the late 1890s, in the country of Ethiopia, there was no electricity. And without electricity, you can't use an electric chair. So what he did instead is not to waste the purchase. He actually took one of those chairs, set it on this stage, mounted it, and then used it as his throne. That's an interesting decision, right? In other words, what Menelech chose to do was use an instrument of death to represent his kingdom, his power, and his authority. As crazy as that sounds, I want you to know this is what Jesus has done. He has chosen to use an instrument of death to represent his kingdom, his power, and his authority. When Jesus told his disciples, here in this guy, kind of, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Guys, if you read the story and you understand what is happening, you understand Jesus has not talked about the cross yet. He has not gone to the cross. You know, he's not dead, right? He has not been crucified yet. So they don't have that as a frame of reference. We do because we know the whole story. At At the moment when Jesus is telling them, take up your cross, it's kind of like telling them in our modern day context, you know what? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick up a little electric chair and follow me. Or I want you to pick up this vial of deadly poison and come follow me. That's how much sense it would have made to them. Because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross. They don't have that image in their head. Jesus has not talked about being crucified yet. That doesn't happen until Matthew 20 on their way into Jerusalem for the final time. In other words, he has said nothing about the cross. The only frame of reference they have for what a cross means is it's an instrument of death. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, that did not make a lot of sense to the disciples. But Jesus used this shocking imagery to, uh, to um, reinterpret, to turn around how they were imagining the Messiah to be. And instead of having the Messiah being about the idea of a throne and a crown and a great army, instead it was going to be about suffering, it's going to be about sacrifice, and it's going to be about dying to yourself. That's what Jesus, is the first time that he's giving them this imagery of the cross. And then he continues, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus telling them? If you want to save your life, if that is the priority of your life, you're going to lose it. If you strive to gain the world, the price you pay is you're going to lose yourself. If you're ashamed of me, God's going to be ashamed of you as well. That's what the kingdom of God will be like. The world teaches us. The world teaches us the way to happiness the way to satisfaction, the way to fulfillment is through self-gratification. That's the words. In other words, we will find happiness when we get what we want. The more often we get what we want, the more happy we will be, is the idea. Now, most of us intellectually know, well, that, that's not really true because, you know, there's never enough is, is going to be the idea. And so, but that's not, it doesn't change the way we live, even though most of us realize Maybe that's not true, but the way we live is still that way. We live in pursuit of things that will make us happy. And what Jesus taught is a completely different idea. What Jesus is teaching here is if you want to have a satisfying, fulfilling life, it's not the road to get there is not going to be through self-gratification, but through self-denial. Deny yourself. Self-denial is the key to living life in the fullest. You have to die if you want to live. You must surrender in order to experience victory. You have to sacrifice in order to gain. No one taught these ideas as a way of living by faith until Jesus and the reason for this, and what's fascinating about this is that in the, making this declaration, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He's basically saying, if you want to continue this, so now that you know that I'm Messiah, if you want to continue this relationship with me, right? If you want to follow me, if you want to continue this relationship with me, this is what you must do: deny yourself. And what he's saying in doing that is he is speaking to this truth that is embedded in our humanity, but most people don't. Recognize. In other words, Jesus, in making this declaration that self-denial is the way to fulfillment, he's saying that that truth doesn't sound like it makes sense, but I'm telling you, I've written it into the DNA of who you are as people, and it absolutely is the path. A life of fulfillment comes not by self-gratification, but by denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following Jesus. And what's even more interesting is the world, modern psychology and modern science, is actually just now catching up to what Jesus knew and taught way back then. So I want to share two experiments with you, and I'll try and do it quick. So I want to share two experiments with you. The first one was conducted by Roy Baumeister. He was a psychologist at... um, Florida State University, and and author of this book that he entitled very simply Willpower. No creativity, just the title. But anyway, um, the book was built, Willpower, on a series of experiments where the subjects were given uncomfortable tasks to do in a lab. So it was a two-part Uh, Experiment. One, the first part is you come in for the first session, and the second part is two weeks later you come back for a follow up. So, what they do is in session number one, the experimenters would have them do something uncomfortable, like stick their hands in ice cold water and see how long they can keep it there, or uh, you know, with those, those hand grips, you had to squeeze one of those springy hand grips and hold it for as long as you can. So, things that were a bit uncomfortable. And so what they would do after that is after they were, they were asked to do that for a period of time, then they were sent home. And they were sent home in two groups. One group was just sent home and told to come back in two weeks. The other group was given a random set of rules that they had to follow for the coming week. And some of the rules included uh, for the next two weeks, in between the time here and the time you're going to come back, you're not allowed to swear. So don't say any curse words the next two weeks. You got it? You got to follow that rule. Or another one would have been, every time you open a door, you have to use your non-dominant hand. So you have to use your opposite hand to open the door. Every single door you open for the next two weeks. So it is a random rule. And the people are like, okay, I've got to follow this rule and then come back in two weeks. So two groups, right? One told nothing, one given a rule. Two weeks later, when they came back, what they found is those who had been given the rule and followed it, rated significantly higher on how long they were able to hold their hand in the water and how long they were able to hold their grip than the control group, which were told, nothing. That was a fascinating experiment. What they found, the conclusion they came to, is the determination to deny yourself or restrict yourself or control yourself in one area seems to generalize to other areas as well. In other words, the self-control it took for you to not swear or to discipline yourself to open the door with the other day that small amount of discipline and self-restraint led to a greater level of determination in other areas as well. In other words, self-denial makes you a more determined person. That was one experiment. Interesting conclusion. The second was done in 2013. It was also part of a two-session experiment, but this one was a lot nicer. In session one, Um, Participants were brought in, and they were told they were broken down into three groups this time. The first group was told, over the course of the next week, you are not allowed to eat any chocolate. No chocolate, right? The second group was told nothing. They were just told, come back next week. And the third group was given two pounds of chocolate, and they were told, I want you to take this with you. I want you to eat as much chocolate as you can comfortably eat over the course of the next week, and then come on back. So those are the three groups. I know which one most of us wanted to be in, but those are the three groups. A week later, when they came in, what the second part of the experiment was, was each person was given a bit of chocolate and then afterwards asked to rate their satisfaction, their happiness, their fulfillment, their savoriness. And so that is what happened during the course of that experiment. So what they found is that the group that was not allowed to eat chocolate over the course of the week reported a much more positive response than the other two groups. In other words, if the ones who were not allowed to eat chocolate, when they came and ate that little bit, they rated it very highly. Like, oh my gosh, this is an incredible experience. This is, as my wife would say, this is the best chocolate I've ever had in my life, you know, and this is amazing. And then the control group was average. And of course, the group that experienced the least amount of satisfaction was the group that had chocolate all week long. And what that experiment, interestingly, and this is not counterintuitive, this probably isn't a huge surprise to any of you, but we probably don't extrapolate it to the conclusion they do. And the conclusion they made, which is fascinating, is self-denial helps people savor more. What we cannot have in the moment leads to greater happiness and greater appreciation later. This is the truth that Jesus is talking about and speaking to, and we know this, Because we've experienced times when we've had to deny ourselves something like we've been away and haven't seen our significant other or seen someone we love or seen our kids for an extended period of time. And then when we see them, we're overjoyed as opposed to if we've been with them every single day and then we see them, it's no big deal. You understand what I'm saying? Self-denial leads to greater gratification. It's a weird, fascinating truth embedded in our DNA and who we are as humanity, but it's not the way the world teaches that we'll be happy. The world teaches, just keep eating chocolate as much as you want. Then you're going to be happy. And Jesus says, no. There's value in sacrifice. There's value in suffering. There's value in discipline. There's value in denial. And these are the things, ironically, which will bring you to the point of appreciating and experiencing the fullness of life more than the alternative. I've gone a bit long today, so uh, if you have any questions or comments about this morning teachings, go ahead and, actually, I'm not super long, so go ahead and type them into awakenqna at gmail.com. And as you do, I'm going to wrap up, right? Know first and then do. That's been our premise this entire summer. Know first and then do. So for us, it's like this idea of knowing Jesus, our experience with God is all going to be somewhat unique. We all have different stories. We all have different ways God has worked in our lives. And the way we worship, the way we connect with God isn't necessarily going to look the same way as everyone else. And that's okay but your relationship with God comes from the knowing. And sometimes we mix the two up and we just put these action steps together and we just say, well, this is supposed to be what it looks like to have a great relationship with God. It means we read the Bible for an hour a day we have, and it's the same formula for everyone and just saying, that's not necessarily the case. There are disciplines that are important to put in place but our relationship's going to be and knowing drives the doing. So last night when I was going through this dry run my daughter, Isabel, was listening in, and she had an interesting observation. I just want to say, it is kind of weird to have Isabel and, and Danielle and Talia, they kind of actually want to hear my dry runs, which is really weird, because I tell them, you're going to have to hear it again on Sunday, you know, and they're like, yeah, well, you know, so anyway, Isabel was listening in on the dry run last night, she had this interesting observation, um, and what she observed was that you know what's strange and I don't remember what led into that conversation but she's like it was something tied to what we were talking about and she's like dad I know that's true you know what's really strange whenever I go to see the families of my friends the kids are just like their parents even when they tell me they don't want to be, or that they're not, or they deny it, but they're just like their parents. They do the same things. They have little things. And I'm like, that is so true, you know, that the more time you spend in intimate relationship, the more alike you become. And that's where we're going in all this. The more you know Jesus, the more intimate your relationship is, naturally, the more you're going to look like him. And so what Jesus has done, and what he's sharing in the story, and why he's given this command, you again... I don't want you to miss the context of this. The disciples have recognized who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. And then Jesus tells them, but recognition is not enough because what you think of Messiah is not who I really am. So I'm going to show you who I really am. I'm the Messiah that's coming to serve, to suffer, and even to someday die for you. That's what it means to be Messiah. And I'm going to keep teaching this to you until you get it. And then... He says, now that that is the case, now that you know and I've blown away your presupposition, your previous idea, you must choose. Will you continue this relationship? The way he asks it is, if you want to follow me, right? Basically, if you want to continue this relationship, this is what needs to happen. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. That's how your life is going to have to look if you want this relationship to continue. And praise God, none of the 12 turned their backs. They wanted to continue the relationship. And that is where we are as well. It was a heavy truth, but the disciples responded. None of them turned away. And I think for us, we have to understand that same reality exists for us. We can't say that we want this deep, intimate relationship with God. We want to know him and then live a completely different way. It just doesn't work that way. I prayed this, but I'll share it again. The great A.W. Tozer once shared his thoughts on how people who have been crucified with Christ have three distinct marks. Number one, they're facing only one direction. Don't get distracted. Don't get divided. There's There's one road if you want to be in relationship with Jesus. Second, they can never turn back. I'll say they've made the decision we will never turn back. And third, they no longer have plans of their own. Everything we have, everything we want to do, our desires even have been sacrificed and said, Jesus, what you want, I want too. Amazing, isn't it? The central truth of the Messiah in our Christian lives is that dying to ourselves will be the very key to getting everything we could ever want and everything that we could ever hope for. Those are some provocative words. All right, let's go from there, and if you guys have any questions or Thoughts, we will tackle that. All right. I understand that self denial is key in following Jesus. Awesome. I do ask.